Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. This is episode 25 and for the first time ever, I think, we are recording on a Sunday morning, rain is falling, except on either side of the ponds, <laughs> it's not raining. It's not raining, Chad. It is sunny. It's a beautiful day here in Johannesburg. And then I saw out your window. It's a beautiful day in <laughs> London as well. What are the chances of that? Absolutely, absolutely incredible weather on both sides of the pond. Well, welcome. This is Across the Pond. pond, across the pond with Barry and Chad. All right, so Barry, why are we recording on a Sunday? Chad, as usual with South Africa, we always have our electricity problems, and sometimes there are things that go against us, and uh, so we're planning to record on Monday, as we normally yep. do, but we got this great little message on our neighborhood WhatsApp group telling us that we have scheduled maintenance tomorrow, so oh. for the whole day tomorrow, Chad, I'm not going to have any power whatsoever, oh. and that is going to be brutal, and so we had to move the recording to a Sunday. Well, that's perfectly fine. As we said, we don't even know what day it is anymore, so that's all right, um, but a full day, that definitely... <laughs> Definitely is going to be tough and uh, yeah, hopefully you are all good through that. Luckily, Barry, you do enjoy a good book, uh, so I'm sure you'll be just fine with that. Exactly. I'm going to read as much as I can <laughs> and enjoy the time disconnected from the rest of the world. Indeed. Well, let's go and look at what happened this past week. The week that was... So I was busy playing a game of poker with Barry and a couple of his friends, and one of the friends mentioned, guys, something is going on with the oil price. Following that call, uh, I got quite a few messages from Barry, and this, this panic really that just filled the globe, uh, where we hit negative oil prices for the first time, Barry. Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy moment. And I think, like you, Chad, I got lots of messages from friends saying, what the hell is going on? And so I spent the most of that night, actually, a good few hours reading and reading and reading and trying to understand what happened because to hear a negative oil price makes no sense whatsoever. And so to try and unpack it, I thought we would try and do, Chad, is try and walk through some of the things that happened and talk about why this price became negative and what it means for the greater kind of conversation around the oil price. Yep. So the oil price is one of those commodity prices that is very important in our world because so much of the, the resources used in everything, right? So if you think of planes and cars and industry and factories and all sorts of things are built on oil as an energy source. And so the oil price is very, very important. But, but it's very political the same way because you've got all these various producers around the world who are fighting against each other to gain market share, to win market share, to kind of sell that oil. And if you think of the way that a lot of wealth has been built in various countries around the world, World, especially people like the Middle East and Central Africa and probably the US as well, a lot of the wealth comes from oil. Sure. And so it's a very contentious issue, a very difficult one, and that's why it's so relevant in this kind of context right now. So let's talk through this. Basically what happened is that US crude oil prices plunged into negative for the first time in history. So this has never, ever happened before. <laughs> Crazy. And at the very bottom, it hit negative 40 US dollars a barrel at one point. Which is hard to understand. Basically, Chad, they were paying you to take their oil. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. I mean, we did see the sort of concern about the storage of oil. And I, and I suppose this is kind of where we're getting to. But I mean, just that thought of a commodity that is typically worth quite a lot and we pay a lot for, that has a direct impact on what we pay for petrol in normal times. People are now trying to you know, pay us to store it. Definitely a, a bit of a mind adjustment. It really is. But before you think that you're going to get your petrol for free or they're going to pay you to fill petrol to your car, <laughs> just wait, just wait. 
basically what happened is that this this kind of figure, this negative price was a little bit misleading, right? So the first thing to understand about this is that there isn't just one oil price. There are various types of oil sure. that sell at different prices. And there's no one person setting that price. So this price is trying to be an average or an indice or an index as to what the average price is across the globe. Right. Even further than that, it's not a gold where you you kind of buying the physical item right now. A lot of these oil contracts are what they call futures. Right. So basically you're entering into a contract to buy oil at a future date at a future price. And as traders, a lot of the traders who are trading on oil, they don't actually want to take physical delivery of the stuff. Yep. They just want to trade it and play on the various like speculation of whether the price is going to go up or down sure. and make their money that way. So what happened in this instance was there was a very, very large contract, a large future that was in place that was due to expire on this night. And this right. large contract was obviously set months in the past, and people had bets on what the price was going to be, etc. And when the contract was about to expire, that is what impacted the price. Now, at that point, the price had gone down so much due to COVID-19 and some other things we'll come to in the moment, that people didn't want to take delivery because they just didn't have the space to store right. it, but there were no buyers to buy that contract. So the price kept going down and down and down and down because people were freaking out because if they landed it with a hot potato in their hands at yeah. the end of that expiration, they were forced to then receive the actual oil. <laughs> so Chad, if you can imagine, you got a, you got an oil futures contract of a million barrels of oil. You're sitting in your fancy hedge fund <laughs> office in New York and uh, all of a sudden, no one wants to buy that thing from you because yeah. the price is just so low and coronavirus has taken over the world so no one's using oil. Sure. You don't want to have to take delivery of that million barrels of oil because where the hell are you going to put it? Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolute crazy. And I mean, I suppose this is the reality of those trading instruments. I mean, ultimately, they are binding legal contracts. And so, you know, as a lot of people would kind of look at them as just a piece of paper and, you know, like you said, speculatively trade on them. This is a side effect of that. So let's kind of go a little bit further into what's actually driven that price to come down. We spoke a little bit a while ago about Saudi Arabia and Russia and the spat that they had. Also, of course, you know, in the times that we're in with the just general demand for oil going down because we're not traveling, etc., etc. Talk us through a bit more there, Barry. Yeah, exactly. So the price has come down dramatically over the last couple of months. And as you say, it's due to a number of reasons. The most important one, of course, is COVID-19, right? So the virus has brought the whole world to a stop. So the demand for oil has gone down probably about 90% yep. almost overnight. Insane. Because if you think about it, the airlines aren't flying for the most part. So they're not buying jet fuel for that. Yep. So the factories aren't operating. So any resource that uses oil for their factories aren't operating right now. Cars aren't on the roads. People aren't filling their cars with gas or with petrol as much. And people aren't trading with each other, yep. right? So even financial instruments, their demand has even gone down because people are so uncertain they don't want to put money in certain things. So COVID-19 brought the demand way, way down. And if you've learned anything from Economics 101, when the demand goes down, the price has to come down because sure. people are trying to get rid of this oil because they're still producing lots of oil. That hasn't changed, yep. but there's no one to buy this oil. And so as that demand goes down and down and down, the price keeps dropping. Now, what would usually happen in this instance, Chad, is that people would stop producing as much, sure. right? If you see the demand is going down and down and down, the idea is you produce less so that you maintain that price. Yep. But this isn't what happened because what OPEC did and what OPEC is, is a collaboration of a bunch of countries, including Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, some African countries, etc., saw an opportunity from this crisis, from this lowering of demand to win market share. Yep. And how they did this was instead of decreasing supply, they increased supply. 
which really blew my mind. <laughs> and the kind of the, the, the logic goes here is that in Saudi Arabia, they are producing Brent crude or crude oil, right? And the, the production cost of crude oil is very, very low. Yep. Environmentally, it's a bit dodgy sometimes, sure. and some of the environmental stuff is, is to worry about, but price-wise, they can produce at a very, very low cost. Whereas producers in the US, for example, who are producing shale oil for the most part, their cost of production is much higher. So what OPEC was able to do, and what Saudi Arabia in specific was able to do, was by producing more and pushing the price even more down, yep. you can put the US guys out of business. Because all of a sudden, if the price of oil is $10 a barrel, sure. and you can only produce at $15 a barrel, you go out of business. Whereas the OPEC guys can maybe produce at $3 a barrel and sell at $10 a barrel. Sure. So instead of decreasing the amount they produce, they increase the supply to try and put the US producers out of business which I think is a crazy strategic move. Absolutely is. And I suppose this is what we were talking about. OPEC, which is essentially, for all intents and purposes, a price-fixing cartel, if you look at it in that way. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to see what has actually happened here is insane. I don't think it's worked for them for the most part. The fact that we've actually seen these price drops go down a lot further below what they potentially would have thought. Definitely. And I think the reason is because they didn't foresee this COVID-19 yeah. virus, right? So so I think they didn't realize the kind of expanse of this and how long demand was going to be suppressed. Yeah. And so it got to a point where all of a sudden the price got too low even for them. And that's when there's a huge problem. Yeah. So obviously the US were in arms about this, very, very angry, because like <laughs> you say, it's, it's, a, it's price fixing to put other people out of business. And it wasn't a true reflection of what the value of a barrel of oil actually was. Yeah. And so Trump and his allies were trying to negotiate with these guys and trying to stop them producing so much oil. And after back and forth, back and forth, I think the OPEC eventually realized they can't keep pushing the price down and down yep. because there isn't enough storage for all this oil. You can produce tons of the stuff, exactly. but you only have so much space to store millions and millions of barrels of oil. And uh, without demand, you actually need to stop that. So what happened was after a long negotiation, they actually came to some sort of deal where OPEC would cut production by 9.7 million barrels a day, which amounts to about a 10% reduction from what they normally produce on a, on a daily basis, which is a step in the right direction. But most analysts believe this is still not nearly enough, especially when you think about the demand that's gone down about 90%. Absolutely. Yeah, those just don't equate. I was on a webcast last week with David Shapiro from Sasfin, and he raised the point that this may trigger potentially a reversal of the shift that we've been seeing from fossil fuels to renewable energy Given the price, the price is tempting for all of these businesses that look at these choices and see renewable energy as a much more expensive investment, certainly upfront. It's that upfront investment that, uh, you know, you need to get all the infrastructure in place before it starts paying off in the long term. And this is an interesting thing to consider, obviously, given the global scrutiny that we've seen increase in the past few years on climate change, potentially a little bit unlikely, but certainly something that we need to consider and something that could be quite worrying and, and really hamper quite a lot of progress that we've made in the space. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think that the renewable energy sector is going to be under pressure because of this, right? Because like you say, they're trying to compete on price. And unfortunately, not everyone is as altruistic as, as we'd like to believe. Not everyone cares about climate change as much as we'd like. Yeah. And a lot of the world still, oper I would say most of the world still operates on that economic kind of indicator as to what is the cheapest way to get this done. 
And if you've got a huge oversupply of oil, you've got the price very, very low, you've got countries around the world whose economies and wealth of their richest citizens depend on this oil being sold, there really is serious incentives there to push against renewable energy. So I think it's going to be kind of a a crux point, a point for us to think about what kind of future do we want to have and how reliant are we going to be on people like OPEC who are kind of controlling this price right now. I think the US find themselves in a very difficult situation because obviously they want to negotiate with OPEC, they want to be able to have some sort of input, they want to be able to have some sort of control over their price or kind of have it be as fair as possible but they just don't have the bargaining power because they don't have the oil. They've got these shale oil deposits which are much more expensive to produce and much less than say Saudi Arabia or Iran has to actually produce the stuff out of the ground. So I think as a renewable energy sector, it's going to be very very difficult right now to try and like prove that your value proposition is worth it without relying on the altruism or kind of the eco-friendly nature of your customer. Absolutely. Definitely a tricky situation to be in. And uh, one of those additional facets where we've seen just the US on the back foot in the last bit, um, like you said, Barry, typically sets the tone and takes the lead on crises like we've been having at the moment. Uh, But they've just been on the back foot, just not being present. And everyone else has to kind of come in and pick up the pieces, which is interesting to see. One of the other things that we saw this past week, Barry, in your side of the pond uh, in South Africa was a bit more of a stimulus package. Initially, when the measures were mentioned, we had a discussion about how shallow that package was and how little relief it actually provided. Certainly a surprise to now see this package, which looks a whole lot more comprehensive. Definitely. I think we've chatted a lot about the fact that South Africa just doesn't have the pockets to be able to pull out huge amounts of money to build this kind of stimulus and kind of try and get the economy back to where it should be. And we're looking at the money that the US had spent and that the UK had spent and comparing it to the measly amounts that South Africa had spent. And so this came as a surprise to most. I think it came as a what's necessary. And uh, Cyril came out and announced a 500 billion rand stimulus package to try and help the economy get back on its feet, to try and feed people and try and make sure that we avoid the the worst of the economic stagnation that's about to occur. So 500 billion rand, Chad, is a huge amount of money. It's a huge amount of the South African GDP. And so the natural question is, where is it going to come from? Mm-hmm. When you've got a country that's highly in debt, um, it's now junk status, so the cost of borrowing is going to be very, very high. For a country where the tax base is so small and it's going through all of this stuff, where is that money going to come from? And uh, I think what a lot of people were missing in the commentary that I saw online and a lot of my friends were chatting about the fact that it's not 500 billion rand worth of new money, right? So we have to be careful about that. The first thing is that 130 billion rand of that 500 is just a reallocation of a budget. So this budget had already been allocated for certain other things in the government and uh, all they're doing is reallocating that budget. So that would have been spent anyway. On top of that, 200 billion rand worth of it is a loan guarantee scheme. Which what that means is that the commercial banks are going to be able to loan out more money to companies around the country and uh, be able to use the government guarantee on the back of those loans to make sure that they get their money back. So you'd like to hope that maybe 50% of those sure. loans don't go bad and so that number will come down. Yep. But even taking those two into account, it still is a huge amount of money and South Africa is going to have to go and look for international support. Mm-hmm. So I know they're talking to the World Bank, they're talking to the International Monetary Fund, they're talking to the African Development Bank, etc. to try and fund the rest of that $500 billion. And I think what's going to be interesting to see, Chad, is at what cost can we raise that money yep. and what conditions are going to be on those loans because that is the biggest thing for us. China would be more than happy to fund us like in a heartbeat. 
but the conditions that are put on that money might yeah. give them way more control of our economies and of our industries than we'd like to admit. Yeah, a few interesting things to touch on and talk about there, Barry. In terms of this measure just being introduced in the first place, do you think it was potentially because of the fact that they may have expected a few more donations from private individuals and companies in that solidarity fund? That's my first question. Um, and secondly, in terms of announcing this measure, which, like you said, potentially those loan guarantees don't go bad and you know that money doesn't have to be funded. Um, but I would like to have thought that they would actually have found that funding before announcing a measure like this. Like you said, they could be in a position where they've now committed to provide all of these loan guarantees and they don't actually have the backing. And South Africa, again, is then on the back foot. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think we are, we are kind of guessing as what happened behind the scenes, right? But I think you're right. I think that there was a lot of pressure because of the fact that the Solidarity Fund is just, it's not big enough. Yeah. It really isn't big enough. And I'm sure that the government economists were telling them, listen, these are your projections for what GDP is going to look like if you don't do anything. And yeah. some people were talking about a 10% suppression of economic activity, sure. which is a huge, huge amount. And we'll put the country on a very, very difficult back foot. And so I think that they kind of got advice from people saying that you need to stimulate the economy, you need to get spending happening again in order to avoid longer term problems. But like you say, those chickens will come home to roost. Yeah. And so all you're doing here is you're kicking the can down the road. You're hoping that those loans aren't going to go bad or you're hoping that the ones that do go bad, you've somehow found the money when they finally go bad. And that's a dangerous spot to be in. And it puts us even more in debt to various debtors around the world. And so, yeah, it is a difficult one to swallow. I think it's necessary, but it's certainly going to put us in a very difficult position going forward. We're going to have to find economic growth from somewhere to be able to pay back all of these things in the future. Absolutely. And that's the natural question, especially with the debt levels that South Africa currently has. In terms of a bit more of a breakdown in terms of specifics, do you think there's anything noteworthy to talk about here? Obviously, we've mentioned the loan guarantee scheme. This is for businesses with turnover less than 300 million rand, which I certainly think covers a lot of SMEs that you know would be in these bad positions. What are some of the other measures that you think are, are relevant to discuss, Barry? Yes. Yeah, so on top of that 200 billion, there's 100 billion demarcated for what they say job protection and to create jobs. Right. I don't know what that means. I don't think anyone knows what that means. Uh, governments have been talking about creating jobs in South Africa for years and years and yeah. years, and we don't see the the kind of reform that we'd like to be able to create those jobs. So I'm not sure what they mean by creating jobs. If job protection makes sense, to try and help companies keep employees on their payroll so that they can go and feed their families and keep that economy alive. So that's $100 billion for that. Sure. Then there's a $50 billion grant that they've put in place, what they've called a temporary six-month COVID-19 grant. And what that is doing is just increasing the amount currently received by those on grants by small amounts. So for example, if you've got a kid and you're currently receiving a social grant for your kid, you're going to get, I think, an extra 300 rand a month. Yep. And if you're currently on a on a grant of some sort of public service or some sort of pension or whatever that story is, those are also going to increase by a small amount to try and compensate for potential loss of income or loss of ability to move around, right? So that's the that's the COVID nineteen grant. Then there's forty billion rand, which is for income support payments. So for employers who can't pay their salaries, they can then go and apply for this outside of the UIF. So okay. what a lot of companies found out in this process is that they weren't actually eligible for those UIF payments because they hadn't kept up with the paperwork right. necessary. And so a lot of companies found themselves in a sticky situation because they were laying off employees, and employees thought that they had UIF cover, but because they hadn't lodged the right paperwork and the right payments over the years, they've all of a sudden difficult situation. So this 40 billion is trying to provide income support payments directly to employees who aren't able to claim from the UIF fund. 
On top of that, there was another 20 billion to assist efforts in fighting the pandemic. So that's for the healthcare stuff. So that's for ventilators, for hospitals, for all of those things to make sure that we can handle the increase in cases that is to come. Sure. Then there's another 20 billion for municipalities to try and make sure we have water, make sure we have electricity, to make sure we can feed people, make sure we have shelter for the homeless, etc., etc. And then the last one is a COVID-19 distress relief grant, which is to pay unemployed persons who can't access the UIF money we spoke about earlier. So that's right. kind of the breakdown of that 500 billion. As always, the real information and the real interest comes as to how you're going to deploy this, how you're going to make sure that it goes to the right people, sure. how you're going to efficiently allocate this money, and that is yet to be seen. Well, we'll certainly have to see as time goes on. Like you said, the corporate bank piece is... A lot easier because these are institutions which are financially strong. Uh, they have their processes all already set up and it's just that extra bit of a guarantee that they have for themselves to kind of lower the risk requirements that they would take on in a new loan application. But for all the rest, you're very right to question how that's going to actually map out when the time comes. Now, in terms of some of the other things announced this past week, Barry, we saw a very confusing system be released by the president called the level one to five system and potentially here a bit of an easing of your lockdown happening next week. Yeah, it was very interesting to watch because I'm not sure if it's just because I'm only focused on South Africa really, but I haven't seen <laughs> these kinds of speeches from other countries around the world about the easing of their lockdowns, yeah. right? And so South Africa is in a position where economically we can't afford to have a full lockdown for much longer just because the impact of the economy is too high and uh, the amount of support that we have isn't enough. So we have to start opening things up. We have to start opening industries up so we can get the economy going again. And so after much consideration and after talking to a lot of scientists and economists and financial analysts and all that good stuff, the government have come up with this, like you say, Chad, this five-level process is how are we going to gradually reopen the country and make sure that we are we're doing it with the kind of the healthcare risks in, in check and uh, understanding the fact that we are balancing a very, very difficult balance here between the, the COVID virus and how it spreads between people, but also are people able to buy food and feed themselves and kind of survive this period. And so this five-level process is what they call a risk-adjusted process. It's a bit of a mouthful, chat. <laughs> but what it's trying to do, as always, is, is trying to figure out, cool, what industries can we bring back online that have the lowest risk for the virus transmission and what is most important and trying to balance all of those various constraints. Yep. And uh, what's going to happen is that they're going to have separate levels for each province and each metro area based on that risk and based on the economic importance. And that makes all the sense in the world. Definitely. If you think about it right now, a lot of our cases are focused in Gauteng, in the Western Cape, and in KwaZulu-Natal. And if you think of provinces like the Northern Cape or Limpopo, etc., they've got very few cases. And so it makes sense that they can yeah. maybe ease their restrictions a bit more than we can here in Gauteng. Sure. And so at the moment, level four for the whole country is going to go into place um, from the 1st of May which is next Friday as a time of recording. And from there, all the various provinces and the metro areas are going to make their own determinations. And so the ministers and the municipalities and whatnot are going to make their own determinations of their risk, their specific needs, their specific economic importance, and then going to choose which level they're going to go to from there. Absolutely fascinating. Now, this kind of system seems for me 
pretty logical, especially if you look at the low number of cases in South Africa. It, it kind of looks like it's just not hitting there. If you look at the low number of deaths, I don't even think you guys have hit 100 yet, uh, whereas on my side of the pond, we've exceeded 20,000 this past week. And so this kind of easing of lockdown for me seems reasonable. But the only question for me is just in terms of the technicality of it all and how you define what can be done in each of these levels. Based on what you were describing, Barry, about some 80-page document being released, for me, it seems quite onerous to introduce this kind of system. Are they going to kind of roll out some easy to understand tutorials or videos or something like that where people can just get the relevant facts without going into too much detail? Yeah, I think they are going to. And this puts us in a difficult situation because when we're recording this, we don't have all the information, but it's likely sure. when this episode is released, there might be more information out there. Yep. And basically what happened was Cyril announced kind of the high-level understanding and tried to set the messaging for what the country is going to do. But then he said all of his various ministers are going to talk about their specific industries. So for example, if you are a teacher and you want to know about the education system, you'll be able to look at the, the Ministry of Education and their minister and talk about the various intricacies and details in that industry. Industry. Yep. Because obviously not all the details are relevant to everybody. Like for construction, for example, I don't really care about what's happening in construction sure. unless it really affects me. And so what's going to happen is that all the ministers are going to have their own kind of briefings, their own documents, their own messaging to try and nail down what does level four mean, what does level three mean, etc. And so over the next few days, those will start to come out. And so at the time of recording, we don't have much of that information at all, really. But hopefully over the next few days, we hear more and more about it so that everyone knows when the 1st of May comes, what does level four actually mean? Absolutely. And like I said, it sounds logical, especially because you have got that complete travel ban, which I'm sure will be carrying on for an indefinite period. So in terms of the enforcement of this, Barry, what do you think is going to be done on that front? Yeah, so that is the challenge, right? And we've had the army deployed helping the police at the moment. And so far, things have gone relatively okay. And the police have managed to enforce this kind of lockdown. But it's, I was saying to you before the call, Chad, right now it's very black and white. Yep. The rules are very, very clear. As these things start to gray, as you start to allow certain things to reopen and certain things to stay closed, the enforcement becomes a little bit difficult yep. because everyone is going to be a bit uncertain and you're hoping your citizens are going to read carefully and really understand what is needed to actually take this forward. So the big risk of this kind of thing is that people start bending rules or maybe not even understanding the rules and then doing things they shouldn't be doing, which causes the cases to go up. And so it's going to require yep. lots of self-discipline from South Africans to ensure that if we want this to work, and everyone does, we none of us want to be locked indoors. We all want the economy to get back to where it should yeah. be. But if we don't do it carefully and, and in a considered fashion, we might see the cases spike and we might have to go all the way back to where we started. And so that enforcement is going to be very, very difficult. And some of the things that they've been talking about from a countrywide perspective, they're talking about a curfew, Chad, from potentially from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. Right. So whereas you wouldn't be able to move around or leave your house or any of that stuff. Cyril has been emphasizing the fact that if you are outside your residence, you must be wearing a cloth mask. Yep. So everybody must be wearing masks. We didn't have the kind of nonsense in the U.S. <laughs> where they were like, mask or no mask, mask or no mask. Yep. Cyril's very clear from the beginning, masks for everybody. Like you say, the borders will remain closed, flights will remain closed, bars, shabines, movies, concerts, sport, religious gatherings, conferences, every, everything where there's lots of people gathering yep. in one place. They will be the last to open. That's pretty clear. One of the key things for us, Chad, is that restaurants are now going to be able to offer deliveries. So for the whole lockdown, restaurants will be completely closed and trying to survive with no income. From the 1st of May, they're going to be able to deliver food to people around the country. So that's a big easing there. Yep. 
there's going to be limited exercise allowed and no one knows what that means yet <laughs> but hopefully we'll be able to run on the road Chad hopefully we'll be able to run in the park yeah. maybe but what is definite is that public gyms will remain closed of course because there's lots of sure. people gathering in one spot and on top of that, we're waiting to hear what industries are going to be able to open up and how they're going to be able to open up. And uh, when we get more information on that, we'll have a better sense of what level four actually means. Absolutely interesting. And this is kind of aligning, in my mind, to the lockdown that we have at the moment, where you can still leave the house for exercise. Uh, there are some essential services going on in the background. Obviously, the fact that you've got five levels um, allows for a lot more flexibility in terms of what each of those levels mean. And it'll be interesting to see as time goes on how often each of these levels changes, um, which is, I suppose, the interesting point here. Like we have with the load shedding system, how quickly does it take to change from one level to the other? And how quickly do you need to adjust? Uh, that'll always be interesting to see. Now, Barry, you put some very interesting quotes here from an American economist, Tyler Cowen, who I actually don't really know of myself, but these are really some interesting quotes. Why don't you talk us through it? Yeah, so please go and look up Tyler. He is one of my favorite academics, one of my favorite thinkers and writers, and he has an amazing blog. So it's definitely worth going to check him out. Cool. But I thought these quotes were amazing because they kind of summarize for me the difficulty with the easing of lockdown and what everyone is trying to figure out and how to do it in the best possible way. So I'm just going to read them verbatim because they're good enough on their own and they say it better than I could say it. Sure. So the first piece. If we keep the economy closed at current levels, it will continue to decay and at some point turn into irreversible non-linear damage. No one knows when or how to model the course of that process. That decay will also eat into our future public health capacity and perhaps boost hunger and poverty around the world. Right, so that's the economic pillar. Sure. The second piece, the alternative, the other side of the coin. If we keep people locked up at current levels, fewer of them will be exposed to the virus, and in the meantime, we can develop better treatments and also improve test and trace capabilities. No one knows how quickly these improvements will come, or how to model the course of that process, or how much net good they will do. So that's the health pillar, right? And so what you're doing is you're stuck between the rock and the hard place, yep. between those two pillars, trying to understand what that balance is. And so the last piece of the quote goes like this. The relative pace of those two processes should determine our best course of action. No one knows the relative pace of either of those two processes. Yet, commentators pretend to be increasingly knowledgeable, moralizing based on the pretense of knowledge they do not have. And so it's important here to understand, like, like he says in the quote, we have to be humble enough about the fact that we are going on our best guesses right now. Sure. And we think we understand the spread of the virus. We think we understand what the economy is doing. But as we start to release these constraints and start to mix these two things, we might find out that the knowledge we thought we have isn't true. or We might have to come to terms with changing circumstances. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, it's a really good way to kind of picture what these curves would look like and what these graphs would look like and kind of overlapping the two to kind of meet somewhere in the middle. But like you said, Barry, this is kind of all theoretical at this point and we don't actually know what those graphs look like. So really tough to, to make a call on that basis. But that certainly is the kind of logic that we'd like to be following at this time. Now, that kind of wraps up the South African easing lockdown point. But the last part of the speech, which I was actually watching live myself, uh, was Cyril pulling out his mask and putting it onto his face, not in the most successful way, Barry. Tell us about the uh, mask challenge hashtag that has emerged from this. 
Yeah, Chad, like you say, it was at, it was at right at the end of his speech. And obviously, he had been told to to show everybody that wearing a mask <laughs> is good and it's important. And he was like going to be the leader. He was going to lead by example. Yep. And in the process of putting his mask on, he had a couple of troubles. <laughs> and uh, he ended up with the mask covering his eyes and not his mouth for a while. And it was a wonderful, wonderful moment because yeah. I think for the whole country, everyone is so stressed. Everyone is so anxious. Definitely. There's so much fear and uncertainty and whatnot. But I felt in that moment that we were all laughing together. Yeah. We had a moment where we were all just laughing at the ridiculousness of the situation, <laughs> the ridiculousness of this global lockdown, this <laughs> virus. And we have this relatable president who does what all of us might do sometimes yep. is just under pressure in front of all the cameras, <laughs> knowing the whole world is watching. You make a mistake like that. And he's come out afterwards and laughed at himself, which has been a really amazing thing to watch yep. because it's so cool to have a president who has a sense of humor, who's able to laugh at himself and by being relatable and by taking it like in a good way yep. in good faith not fighting it not being defensive or any of that exactly. he really has brought the whole country together and so that mask challenge you see if you go on social media and you search hashtag mask challenge you see everybody with their face marks over their <laughs> eyes and it just is an amazing social media like gathering uh, reminding us we're in this together and South Africa will come out on top it's so important and even for me being this side of the pond was just such a nice moment like you said where previously had another president who took themselves way too seriously done that i would have been you know going what the heck what an idiot you know, what is he doing but the fact that you're looking at cyril and he really doesn't mind um you know making himself look silly he has obviously brought out the elbow tap all of those memes as well and so for me the fact that you've got this president who like you said has such a great sense of humor and uh, at the back of that just showcases his human qualities as well for me it just makes him such an incredible leader and really just the right person at the home at this time yeah we, we are super grateful and super lucky to have him at this point um, I think that if we look at presidents around the world I'm very happy with the one that we have right yeah. now and uh, I think that he really did show that he is a human and he is relatable and he is for the people I'm sure he's under an immense amount of stress right now you can see that he's tired you can see that he's worn yeah. down you can see that he's got a lot on his plate and just that small moment of humor that small moment of just allowing the whole country to breathe a sigh of relief really does do a lot for morale and does a lot for kind of nation building. And hopefully we can carry this forward into this easing process and hopefully we carry forward this this kind of patriotism and this pride we have in our country past this virus. Yeah. If that happens, I think this virus could be a blessing in disguise and could set South Africa up for a future that is hopefully more bright than what we've seen over the past 10 years. Absolutely, Barry. Couldn't deny with you there at all. Now, not to go into too much of a rabbit hole, but I just wanted to raise the wider question here about formality and whether formality is always necessary. I feel like as humans, we like to you know, put this kind of framework of formality sometimes in situations where becoming less formal will actually just make the whole process work a lot more smooth. What do you think? I think you need both. I think you need both. And I think that they, they work incredibly well when you know how to balance them, yeah. right? So it's very important that when Cyril is making important announcements that it is formal, sure. that it is structured, and that it does come from a place of authority and whatnot so that people take it seriously. You don't want him joking in the second minute sure. of his speech, sure. right? You want to be very, very serious and, and make sure that he stresses the importance of the various announcements. 
But then you also need to know that he's not a robot, that he's not just this politician who doesn't care about you. You want to know that he has, he has the same fear as you, the same anxiety as you, because being able to relate to a leader in that way makes you so much more willing to follow and so much more willing to buy into what he's trying to do. Yeah. And so I think it's a great point, Chad. I think that we have to understand that as a leader or as someone in a formal situation, a little bit of humor or a little bit of a joke or a relatable moments yeah. really goes a long way to just releasing some of that tension and releasing some of that enforced structure yeah. that really does a lot for us. And it makes us feel for that person in a human way more so than just a political way. Indeed. Couldn't have said that better myself, Barry. Moving on to the side of the pond, uh, there's a couple of things to discuss on the UK piece, uh, but we're not going to go into too much detail. This last week, we saw that the UK Transport Minister has now approved drone trials to deliver medical supplies. This is a fast track of these kinds of trials. These had been signed off on a lot earlier this year, and there was actually £28 million set aside for these trials to happen. So this will be actually now starting this week, which is insane for me to think that we're going to have drones flying around delivering medical supplies, uh, certainly at a time of need. This is happening in Portsmouth, essentially, the south of England, where you have an island which is called the Isle of Wight. And so this will obviously be for the drones to go back and forth uh, between the mainland and that island to deliver the medical supplies to the St. Mary's Hospital. But for me, Barry, this is so great to see that we're actually adopting this kind of technology and fast-tracking its use. That's really cool. I mean, people have been talking about drone deliveries for a while now, yep. but so often the regulations stand in the way, right? The regulations trying to manage airspace, trying to manage privacy, those sorts of things. And so to see this happening in a time where innovation is needed and uh, to see this tech coming to the fore is really exciting for me. And I'm excited to see how it goes and whether it sets a precedent for future experiments and future kind of changes to regulation. Well, we'll certainly be able to talk about that, I'm sure, next week, as obviously these drone trials are happening right away. So we'll, we'll certainly cover that as it develops. One of the other things is Dyson, and we spoke about Dyson stepping in to produce ventilators. They were told this week by government that those ventilators are not needed. Now, that team there at Dyson have been working 24-7 to come up with this design. They have spent £20 million on this project, which is just going to be a sunk cost. James Dyson has come out and said that he won't be looking to repatriate those funds from government or anything like that. And so this is all coming about on the back of some reports saying that Dyson was using this as a PR campaign <laughs> for point scoring. What do you think, Barry? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that everyone always is questioning motives and questioning reasons for doing things. And uh, I don't think anyone knows except Dyson as to what the actual sure. incentive was. Obviously, it is it is frustrating if you've built all these things or spent a lot of money and, and all of a sudden they're not needed. But Chad, when I look at the story, can't they sell them to other countries? Surely <laughs> the countries around the world, they would buy these things? Absolutely. And I think they are going to be carrying on with that. Like I said, the fact that they're not looking to repatriate these funds means that they're going to be holding on to that R&D. And I'm sure they've come up with some really cool designs there. The interesting piece here is there's a manufacturer in Germany, from what I believe, who's received a massive order that side and also for the UK as well um, to balance out the, the need here. So that's an interesting one. We'll certainly see as obviously a load of new developers are coming through in here. I think regulation seems to be quite a big piece here in getting these patents approved for use in the medical field. I think that's quite a hurdle as well. So I think their application is still ticking on in the background and, and we'll certainly see if that gets approved, um, whether they become a big play in the space. But uh, really interesting for me. One of the other things is I dug out a quote from James Dyson, which I interpret as a little bit 
bitter in my mind. So what he said was, <laughs> we have spent around 20 million pounds on this project to date, but we will not accept any public money. The team have worked 24-7 to design and manufacture a sophisticated ventilator in a short time frame. I hope they can spend this weekend with their families who will have not seen them for weeks. Which, yeah, for me, as I said, seems a little bit bitter. Yeah, there's a lot between the lines there. In any of these kind of quotes, there's a lot between the lines. And obviously, he, he must be frustrated because imagine yeah. working that hard on something that, that doesn't have a, an endpoint. So you, you think it's going to have value, but maybe it doesn't. Um, but I think it's it's much better in these situations to have this and not need it than to not have it and to need it, right? Yeah. And so there's going to be a lot of innovation, a lot of investment over this period that might be a sunk cost, that might be wasted because we figured the problem out. But you have to have it in case. And so... It's not a waste of time, it's not a waste of money, but it certainly is a difficult pill to swallow if you put all this work in, all of a sudden you can't get that value. Absolutely, couldn't agree with you more there, Barry. Now the final thing I wanted to chat about this week in terms of the UK and some of the news this side is that we've seen 10 Downing Street drop China from the list of countries to compare stats to. Obviously, this is amid concerns of the reliability of the numbers that have been reported from China. And we've seen kind of hushes about around the world about this, but no actual sort of action taken. And for me, this seems to be quite a statement to be making. Yeah, I think everyone is thinking it. It's one of those things that everyone is thinking, but like you say, no one's actually said it out loud because yep. uh, it's a dangerous accusation to make. Um, but the numbers coming out of China do seem strange to everybody. It is strange that from the center of the outbreak, they are seeing numbers like they are. Yep. And uh, we've known from the past that, that China has tried to hush things, tried to keep things under the rug. And so this makes sense to me. I think it makes sense in, in trying to make sure that you only look at numbers that you think are reliable. And if you don't think they're reliable, then don't use them in your model. And so that makes a lot of sense to me. When you talk about the accountability, Chad, yeah. I have seen some rumors of people thinking of trying to sue China or oh, wow. trying to sue various Chinese organizations because of what's happened. And obviously, this is a very like fear-based response. So you don't know how many of those suits are actually going to be yeah. legit or, or reasonable. But there is some talk about looking to sue China for damages based on what's happened because of this virus. Now, to be very clear, we're not saying the Chinese created this. We're not saying yeah. that China like had any way in letting this out. But maybe there's negligence in how long it took them to kind of talk about it and bring it to the attention of the World Health Organization yeah. and various other bits and pieces. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there. That'll happen over the next, say, five, six years, yeah. I'm sure, because yeah. these things take so long. But uh, everyone is going to be is going to try and hold people accountable, especially in a Chinese context. Absolutely. And it's important that that accountability does come. It's hard to prove, like we said, whether this is the case or not. Like you said, it seems hard to believe the numbers that we see coming out of there. It's possible, but it does seem hard to believe and so I suppose proving it and all of those lawsuits are going to really struggle to get that proof piece out, I suppose. But we'll certainly track that along as it goes on. Let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. So this week I wanted to chat about a little app called Descript and I have to at the top of this topic give credit to my friend Nicola for sharing it with me and so if you've never heard of Descript well what it is is an app that uses artificial intelligence to give visibility when editing spoken word. Now that's my definition and it might sound a little bit complex but I'm, what I'm going to do is unpack what it does and we will sort of carry on talking about it from that point of view. So what you do is you upload an audio clip and it takes a few minutes to process so the AI works through the 
the audio clip. And in the end, it spits out a script where you can actually look at all of the words that were spoken in that clip. And you can edit your episode or whatever it is that you're editing by simply selecting words and deleting them. So if you select words, delete them, the audio that is behind those words will actually be deleted as well, which is certainly an extra dimension in editing. And how effective this is depends really on the speakers. So the pace at which people speak obviously determines the accuracy of those cuts. And if you look at Barry and I, I would say it's kind of hit or miss. We speak relatively quickly, I would say. So you need to kind of pick your battles. And so I, when editing, I'm still looking at the audio clip and kind of looking at whether there was a cut off or whether we sort of spoke two words in one, if that makes any sense. And so not only does it spit out this kind of script, but it also shows you your waveform below. And so that waveform has that added dimension of words. So you're actually looking at an audio waveform that has words on top of each of the peaks and troughs, which is certainly something interesting to see and certainly something that I've never had at my disposal when doing any sorts of editing. And so what is my verdict? So what I did is I used this app last week uh, to edit our episode last week. So do let us know what you thought of that episode. But from that process, what I can say is the AI made plenty of mistakes. So I would probably say it had a, <laughs> around an 80% hit rate in terms of the accuracy of the words in terms of what we were speaking. But for our purposes, we're not relying on that script. Uh, the script is not our end goal. Essentially, the end goal here is to get to the quickest workflow to put an episode together and publish it. And so... For me, you can correct those mistakes if you need to, but like I said, that's not our requirement. In terms of the mistakes aside, it still makes editing words a whole lot easier and editing becomes a lot more visual than it was before. So I'm quite keen to see how this app handles video. I believe it is in its core functionality. And all in all, I would say that I enjoyed the process of editing a whole lot more. I was no longer blind to the substance of the audio clips. It kind of adds in another dimension. Um, and and so for you listening to these episodes, you know, it might seem like it's something that is quick to spit together, but, you know, sometimes it takes me three or four hours to edit one episode together. And so any little wins here in terms of productivity and efficiency um, really do make a massive difference. One of the other things that it has is cool collaboration tools. So Barry, you and I could actually edit two different halves of an episode if we wanted to get an episode out quickly. This is because it's cloud-based. And so I thought that was really, really cool. Obviously, in, in terms of limitations, there are some limitations. It has an export feature where you can export all the work that you've done in this app to Premiere Pro, which is the Adobe Creative Cloud Suite app that I use for, for video editing. And so that export doesn't preserve any audio fades, which for me is kind of a deal breaker for this feature, but I'm sure it's something they'll work on. Similarly, the audio effects in terms of the EQ that they have in terms of adjusting your voices and that kind of stuff, it doesn't allow you to define the depth of a curve like a parametric EQ would. I know it sounds a bit technical, um, but it's it's just more simplistic. It's, it's, it's kind of just got those faders where you can up and down different frequencies uh, in the audio wave. But all in all, Barry, this app is a game changer in my opinion. Chad, I love that it's in capitals on our notes here. It's a game changer and I love it. And I think it's such a cool app. I mean, I, I said to you before the call, I really do enjoy this piece of software and I think it's a very important piece of what AI can do for the future. Um, for people who haven't edited audio before, you might not be able to appreciate how powerful this is because if you think about it, when you're editing audio, you're looking at a waveform. You're looking at those weird squiggly lines exactly. that show you a waveform as to what that means, but you can't see what the words are. Yeah. And the editing actually matters. Like when you're editing, you're editing words, right? Yeah. 
And so to be able to put those two things together, to be able to match a waveform to a word, really gives you much more visibility, like you say, and yep. makes it much easier than having to replay the same little clip a thousand <laughs> times and try and make sure you're cutting out the right piece of waveform. Exactly. Um, and so it really is a powerful piece of technology. It's obviously not there yet, and I don't think they do as well on South African accents, yes. so that's definitely a piece of it as well. <laughs> but it really is an interesting piece of technology, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing, Chad, if it continues to behave like you think it does. Yep. And moving Moving on from our unique use case, I see a very interesting kind of side effect of this is that if this becomes well used and used across the industry, podcasting and audio have become a huge portion of the media landscape. Sure. We're seeing thousands and thousands of podcasts all around the world about various topics. And I can imagine a Google search for podcasts in the future right. where people can search for a certain keyword or a certain kind of <laughs> yeah. idea by typing words into a search bar. And then that searches the descripts for every single podcast across the world yeah. and can point you to minute 32 of this particular episode of this particular podcast yeah. where the information resides. And so what this does is it allows opening up of that podcast landscape to um, a kind of a Google search type approach yeah. because you have those transcripts that are very, very accurate. And so that's why I'm so excited about this. As an AI nerd, I'm excited to see it in the real world. I'm excited to see it really making a difference in this project. Yeah. And Chad, I can't wait to hear as we go on the next few months as to whether this really does improve your workflow, whether it makes it much easier for you or if it's a bit gimmicky. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. And, and while I was doing the edit, I was going between, is this a game changer or is it a bit gimmicky and, and that that is the answer and I, I finally settled on the game changer but just because of as you explained that extra view that you get on it I like those use cases that you mentioned there Barry um, because you can export that script like I said and that's why they have the feature for you to correct some of those words too and so if you think of a use case like YouTube as an example as well what you could do is have a much more accurate captioning system uh, which is also cool for people who are handicapped as well to be able to potentially get into the podcasting game just because you can't hear should you be prohibited from enjoying all of the content that loads of podcasters are actually putting out there and so for me this is like you say such a cool tool i have purchased the sort of pro version for one month to give it a go for a month and so we'll kind of see how it settles there all of those collaboration tools that i mentioned are on a team version which is a couple of more dollars extra a month but for me what they give you especially if you're an individual that has lots of these types of projects like you said barry not just podcast but uh, if you also, you know, just do YouTube videos for reviews or whatever the case is, you can upload all of the stuff in there and just edit it based on the text, uh, which is certainly powerful indeed. And uh, a really, really cool tool, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, so yeah, that's stuff I find interesting for this week. Hopefully you enjoyed a bit of that nerd talk. Barry and I certainly enjoy all of this techie stuff. Yeah, we, we are two nerds, and so we do apologize for some of the technicalities, but hopefully you can feel the passion in our voice, and uh, you can hear that this kind of tech really does have a bright future, yeah. and we look forward to seeing, seeing one. And talking about a future, Chad, shall we look ahead? Let's do it. Looking ahead. So the first point on our list today is one where we talk about the company we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, Zoom, and they potentially have a, another competitor. Now, Facebook enters the den. Facebook, obviously, like you mentioned, Barry, in I think it was last week or the week before that the platform has just become a whole lot more complex and they seem to be throwing everything but the kitchen sink into this arena. Talk us through the new developments. 
Yeah, so if you're anything like me, in the last week, you've had a call on Google Meet and on Teams <laughs> and on Zoom and on Skype and on WhatsApp video calls and on House Party. There are tons of them, right? And everyone is getting into the game because everyone is stuck at home and yep. these video calls are becoming so useful. So as to be expected, Facebook jumps on the bandwagon. I think we've seen in the past Facebook are really good at copying other people's ideas yep. and putting them into their products. <laughs> we've seen how they, that what they did with Snapchat. Yep. We've seen how they did with so many other companies around the world. Um, and so again, they do the same thing where they decide, cool, they want to go to war with Zoom. Yep. And what they've done, Chad, is they've used their Messenger app, which is currently their kind of messaging platform of choice. And they've created something called Messenger Rooms, which allows 50-person video calls f completely free. Insane. So at the moment for Zoom, you get, I think you get 40 minutes free and you have to pay to upgrade the meeting, etc. For Messenger Rooms, it's going to be completely free. You're going to be able to have a max 50 people in your video call. And uh, they're going to go head-to-head -head with Zoom and try and win some of that market share that Zoom has gobbled up over the last few weeks. Insane. And it's that cost element, I think, which is definitely going to appeal to individuals like you and me, Barry, where, you know, we have, for instance, a poker game or whatever the case is, and somebody needs to have a paid account there to facilitate the game. And so I think that is certainly a very, very useful feature. And I think a lot of people are going to jump on and at least give it a try, especially for the fact that it's free. But the question is, will it always be free? Where is Facebook going to start monetizing this platform? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think that Facebook's business model in the past has just been to gather attention, right? Yeah. So potentially I see this remaining free, but they're going to throw ads there at some point, right? Because Facebook love the ads. <laughs> and so at some point you're going to have a big ad before you get to go into a messenger room and yeah. that's how they're going to monetize, I would think. So I think that they're going to try and tackle it that way. We'll have to wait and see what the quality is like. As always, what kind of wins this battle is reliability. Sure. What Zoom has done so, so well is that every Zoom call just works. Yep. It just works and it's reliable and it sticks and your video and your audio works. And so I think that's why they've won against competitors like Skype and, and the rest. So we'll have to wait and see how reliable Facebook's one is and how user-friendly it is. I think lots of people will try it because a lot of us have already got the Messenger app. We've already got the app on our phone. There's no friction there. It's just a brand new feature in an update. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see. Chad, maybe we should try one and report back to the listeners after we've given it a go. Hey, maybe next week's episode we should record on. On that app and, and see how it goes like you said uh, <laughs> it would be an interesting experiment to try because we've just stuck with skype uh, for as long as we've started this podcast we've just kind of stuck with it certainly could throw something else in the mix and let you know our thoughts the next one is companies holding off on releasing quick fire updates now this is something that i just mentioned on some anecdotal kind of evidence that I saw this week of these quick fire updates. And I'll start off with the first one, which was Adobe Premiere Pro, which I mentioned uh, in the Descript feature. And that is that there was some bug regarding the metal process. Now, what that is, is essentially when you're editing video, your graphics processing unit uses this metal infrastructure. And so there was some instance where all of my video footage just became offline and I couldn't access it at all. I went onto the support forums and what they said was, you need to disable that and just use the software only stuff. Now, anyone who uses the software when they see a comment like that from the developer, just says, well, what was the point of me buying my expensive graphics processing unit if I'm just going to disable it? And so what the majority of people did was actually downgraded the Premiere Pro version to the previous version. For me, insane that we see these kinds of bugs, Barry, and certainly companies need to do a whole lot more testing before they release them. 
Yeah, definitely. I think there's a big trade-off here between speed and reliability, right? And as, as Adobe or as any of these big companies, you have to make sure that your software integrates very well with the hardware that your users are using. Yeah. So they will know their audience. They will know the kind of use cases that people use that software for. They will understand. They should understand the fact that yeah. everyone's got these fancy machines because they want to be able to, to process like 4K graphics and all sorts of fancy stuff. And so to not have that integration like tested and not to make sure it actually works is very strange. And it certainly does harm the trust for example for you like you're going to have less trust in Adobe from this experience and might be more willing to think about switching to a competitor so as a big company you want to be speedy you want to be releasing updates as much as possible because you want to give the best possible experience and the cutting edge technology to your consumers but if it comes at the expense of these sorts of headaches then it actually does more harm than good absolutely completely agree and uh, you're right I'm certainly open a lot more to sort of Final Cut Pro which is Apple's app in the space. One of the other apps where I had the same instance this past week was the one that we just spoke about, Zoom. Um, and so I wanted to just introduce a really cool little utility that I use to everyone listening to this podcast uh, called Epoch Cam. And what that does is it turns your iPhone into a functioning webcam. So at the moment, I'm talking to Barry with my iPhone plugged in, and he is actually watching my iPhone's camera video. And obviously, this is great for those who don't permanently need a webcam. If you've got a microphone that works, you've always got your phone in your pocket. And so for me, this is such a cool utility, but it doesn't work with the latest version of Zoom. So similarly to the previous one, I had to downgrade my Zoom release version to the previous version, which is just insane. Yeah, there's tons of these, hey? And and Zoom is in that difficult situation where their number of users has exponentially increase in a very short space of time. And so I know the developers are working night and day to fix all of these issues and fix all these compatibility issues. And the speed at which they can do that is very important. And so we're gonna have to wait and see whether they can fix those things in time to keep your your business and keep your kind of trust. Um, but again, it's, it's so difficult, I think, as a company to think about all the various forward and backward compatibility yeah. issues you need to have to be able to talk to all these various devices and all these software platforms and yeah. all these use cases. I I think as a developer right now, you have a lot of things on your Kanban board and you've got a lot of work to do over the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. It just shows you why those sort of beta releases are so important and why getting feedback and doing testing on them is so important. Now, the last thing I wanted to speak about in this space is something that I saw about a security warning issued by a security researcher on behalf of Apple relating to Apple's mail app. Now, Barry, you've had an iPhone for how many years? Oh, it's been a long time, Chad, at least 10 years. (laughs) Well, this is saying that almost every iPhone on the planet, and I think every iPhone that had iOS 6 or higher, has had this vulnerability within that iOS mail app, which allows an attacker to remotely infect an iPhone and gain control over their inbox. Now, I believe these attacks have been happening for at least the past two years, and these will happen without the owner actually even knowing that this is taking place. Now, how does that make you feel, Barry? I don't, I don't like to hear that, Chad. <laughs> I, I don't like to hear that at all. Um, I think I think a lot of people buy Apple because they're convinced that these things can't get hacked, right? One of the main competitive advantages that Apple has over Windows is that they sell the story of like this very, very private device, this very, very closed ecosystem. The idea that you're not going to have viruses and malware yeah. and hackers being able to get into the system because it's completely closed and completely controlled. Yeah. And so when you hear things like this, you're like, oh, I don't want to know that, Chad. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's interesting because they've released a statement to say that the issues do not post an immediate threat to their users. Yet, what they're doing is crediting this researcher for identifying this issue, and they're releasing a fix in what seems like a bit of a hurry. Um, so actions do speak louder than words on this one. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's always important to read between the lines of these press releases. And uh, like you say, you look at the actions and you look at how quickly they're trying to fix this thing. Um, obviously, they don't want to make people panic. But I think it's worth following this story, especially if you have an iPhone, and making sure that your mail is not compromised. Um, and hopefully, you're not famous enough for people to want to get into your mail just yet. Yep. But there's still risk there. And so make sure you, you're controlling all of those things and uh, thinking about that carefully. Absolutely. Well, keeping on that topic, and just to quickly revisit something we spoke about a few weeks ago which was the ipad pro 2020 and when we spoke about it i said to you barry i haven't been able to justify upgrading from my current version because it's still working fine etc 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 and what did i do barry what did i do Chad, I knew you were going to do this. Even though you told me that, I knew because I know you too well. You're too much of a gadget guy to not want to upgrade. And so I got this kind of apologetic message from Chad saying, I did it, Barry. I did it. I upgraded. But I don't think you regretted it though, Chad. Absolutely not. So let's just say that I started on the 9.7 iPad Pro, which is now a few years old. I think it's about three or four years old. And so there has obviously been quite a few advancements since then. So let me just take you through a little bit of my experience. Now, what I've done is I've actually edited a couple of 4K videos on this iPad uh, using an app called LumaFusion. And it was completely smooth. And there's something about using touch and editing video with an Apple Pencil, uh, that just completely changes the process and makes it a whole lot more enjoyable. So for me, this device is certainly, certainly not one that doesn't have a place in the world. I know we said it kind of sits between a phone and sits between a laptop, but sitting on the couch, you know, being able to hold it up and use your finger, use, use an Apple Pencil to do these fine precision movements is certainly something you can't do on a laptop and something I've been really, really enjoying it for. One of the other cool things is I could actually record this podcast on that iPad, Barry, uh, because of the fact that it has a USB-C port. So I can now actually plug in sound cards. I can plug in hard drives, which is insane and has really changed the game in terms of opening up that iPad OS infrastructure to actually have that file system where you can actually copy, paste things, unzip files, all of that kind of stuff, all of those types of things that you weren't able to previously do on Apple devices. And lastly, just that Apple Pencil and how that's been refined in the last generation, which I know has been out for, I think, a year or two now. That second generation really, really is a whole lot lighter and writing on the screen feels a lot less like writing with a stylus and a lot more like writing with a pencil. So yes, you're right, Barry. I do not regret this purchase at all. Um, <laughs> I am on the sort of queue to, to buy that magic keyboard that we spoke about that has the trackpad as well because I've seen some really cool reviews out of that. And so yes, I think it's a really, really great device that is very powerful and in terms of the screen as well and just its brightness and the refresh rate is so fast you know it's so fluid and everything just happens in my opinion definitely the best tablet on the market yeah without a doubt i think that it, it blows all the other tablets out of the water and i think what's been interesting for me to watch is that like you said the last various refreshes of the ipad have all seen small little yeah. changes that haven't seen that significant and uh, you didn't really have reason to upgrade for the last few years yeah. but for some reason the combination of all these little changes has yeah. now made this ipad a very different device exactly. so the combination of the improved apple pencil the increase in screen size, the increase in processor speed, yep. the cursor support, 
port, the USB-C. All of a sudden, when you put all of these things together, you have a device that is very, very different to the, the previous one. And it really gives you a reason to upgrade. And uh, I think it's a very impressive device. I'm kind of living vicariously through you, Chad, <laughs> and I'm enjoying that you're enjoying it. Yeah. It certainly is something to look at if you're a student, if you're doing something creative, if you're an artist, if you're doing music, etc. It's a very, very powerful device that's worth looking at. And if you've never looked at an iPad before, get your preconceptions of what that tablet yeah. is out of your head first because Definitely. this is a brand new device compared to what it looked like four years ago. Absolutely. And just to add to that use case, when we do eventually get back to traveling, I think that's when you see these types of devices actually thrive because of their portability. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like you said, with that cursor support, which I actually didn't mention, and that is a new feature, is very, very useful. So I use a mouse that allows me to connect to three devices kind of at the same time. There's a toggle switch where you can switch between the devices. And so to be able to put that iPad on this desk and switch between my laptop and the iPad and actually be able to click my way through the system has definitely added another dimension to, to using iPad OS. And there's something about the system and the fluidity of it that there isn't windows, that things just click and pop in place and you can you know throw your finger around and it, it all just works. And so yeah, it definitely has a space in the market and you're completely right, Barry. Uh, if you are looking at going this way, drop all of your current conceptions about what it is because it might just impress you a lot more than you think. Let's move on now to our next segment. Develop and grow. Cool, so on Develop and Grow, I came across a little article that basically spells out nine things that you can do to improve your mood. So Barry, I thought we would just discuss a couple of these. Some of them are quite funny. Some of them are, you know, easy to understand why. So let's just talk through <laughs> them, Barry. Why don't you kick us off? Chad, the first one makes me so sad because we can't <laughs> do this really. The first one is a 20-second hug. <laughs> and uh, hugs are one of the greatest things in the world. Yep. That kind of physical connection with another human being is, is incredible. Yep. And it's something at the moment that is illegal chat which is very sad <laughs> it's illegal but there are people in your household right so you could hug your mom for 20 seconds barry i can hug my fiance for 20 seconds and both of us can walk away from that interaction feeling just a little bit better and a little bit happier the second one which you would definitely appreciate is joining a choir now that's also illegal at this point in time barry unless you join one <laughs> over zoom yeah exactly it, it is illegal at the moment but chad i'm actually joining a virtual choir ah. in a couple of weeks there's a guy called eric whittaker who does this this thing called virtual choir and he does i think cool. once a quarter or something he's done about six or seven of them and he sends out your voice part and you sit at home with your zoom camera and you record yourself singing and then he does the crazy editing job oh, of wow. putting together thousands and thousands <laughs> of voices to make a really cool piece of music so maybe mm. that's a way to do it right now but uh, joining a choir is certainly a way to, for me to get happy if you don't enjoy singing then maybe it's not for you but for yeah. people who do enjoy singing try and find a church choir or a small choir in your community that kind of community aspect of it really makes a lot of difference Absolutely. And it's not about what you sing or, or any of that. It's, it's the being able to be in a space and hear harmonies and hear people singing yep. together. There's something magical about that. Yep. Talking about magic, meditation is something that everyone's talking about yep. right now as a way to try and calm the mind. And so often just a three-minute meditation can really make a big difference to your morale. By focusing on your breathing and by taking a moment yep. to be still, it really can change your mindset, Chad. I can definitely see that happening. And I go throughout the day and sort of realize at the end of the day how shallow I'm breathing. It's really weird when I have to stop myself and force myself to breathe deeply. Because sometimes when you're going through your day-to-day -day life, I don't know why, but you just stick to the shallow breath and it really 
really does affect your whole day. So throwing in that three-minute meditation, it's quite a short period of time. You don't have to sit in some funny position if you don't want to. You can just sit on the couch and just <laughs> be with your thoughts and think about your breath. But it certainly could boost your mood. The next one I thought was quite funny, and I've never done this, but is a kitchen disco. Barry, would you be getting out those blue suede shoes and doing something in the kitchen? <laughs> Chad, I, I think I need to. I think I need to. I've, I've seen lots of TikToks and lots of Instagrams of people doing it with their families, uh, doing it to a silly song and dancing around like a maniac. So maybe a kitchen disco is in order. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. We'll have to give that one a try. Certainly, you would have to get some good lighting going there and uh, some decent sound in the kitchen. <laughs> Such a random place to do it. Interesting. Why don't you take us through the next one, Barry? Yeah, so the next one is to draw for 45 minutes. And uh, I, I can certainly attest to this. I, I've always been someone who really sucks at art. Yep. I can't draw <laughs> to save my life. And so it's always been something I've really wanted to do. And I remember over Christmas time, we had this idea, me and my family here, to all put an object on the table and all try and draw the same thing and okay. see what our various versions looked like. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun even though it didn't look anything like what was on the table it was still good fun right and so drawing for 45 minutes takes you back to that childhood it takes you back to all of that drawing with crayons and and tries to force you to visualize something in the world like often like you say we don't take our breath seriously we often don't take our observations seriously because we take things for granted so take a random object in your house something that you never really pay attention to because it's just there all the time and when you draw it you start to realize oh this actually has potentially more beauty than i thought or more complexity or it's 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 different you see things in a different way and that's a really cool activity i think chad yeah i agree and i'm like you barry terrible terrible at drawing um but <laughs> yeah, certainly worth giving it a go and i'm sure there's some cool tutorials as well there to learn how to get better at drawing if you're actually worried about what it looks like but i don't think that's the point of this so go on those little rabbit holes and you know draw whatever you think it looks like no one else is gonna care it's just for you to feel a bit better about it as well Exactly. But also, if you want to draw and you want to send us the picture of your drawing, that's also amazing. So do yeah. send those through. If you do take this up, we'd love to see it. And we promise we won't laugh at you because we are just as bad. Absolutely. Just as bad. Absolutely. Yeah. The next one, Chad, is to take a hot bath. So to get that bath right up nice and full, make it scalding hot, and just fall into that bath and just let that relaxation take hold. And there's some feelings in the world that are incredible, and that is one of them, Chad. You're not wrong, Barry. There's something about water that is just so therapeutic, and I'm really sad about this one because I've recently moved into a flat that doesn't have a bath. I only have a shower. Oh, Chad. So I'm really Chad. jealous for all of you who are able to get that relaxing feeling going lighting some candles reading a book etc etc <laughs> i'm super jealous one of the other things that uh, you'll be easily able to do in south africa barry is gardening have you got green fingers I haven't before this quarantine, Chad, but I've been doing actually a lot of gardening really? in the last few weeks because my mom is in love with it. Yeah, My mom is spending probably four to five hours a day in wow. the garden right now. Okay. Um, she's really, really enjoying it. And at some points, she needs a bit of muscle. And so she calls me, of course, <laughs> to come and pull out weeds or dig the spade into the ground nice. or do all that good stuff. And so I've done more gardening in the last two weeks than I've done in my entire life. <laughs> um, I can't say it's my thing. I don't. It doesn't really fill me with joy, yeah. but it is interesting 
interesting to get outside, get in the sun a bit, yeah. and especially in South Africa where you've got some space to get outside and get your fingers dirty. There's, there's something special about that tangible feeling. Yeah. Getting you away from your iPhone, away from your screens, and into dirt, into the earth, yeah. there is something special about that. Yeah, definitely. Easy to understand how that one would be possible. The next one is deep sleep. We've obviously spoken about this, and obviously the importance of making sure you get that good night's sleep night after night. Obviously one way to improve your mood as well. Yeah, without a doubt. I think if you were able to wake up without an alarm, your mood would be a lot better. Yeah. That alarm sound irritates everybody. <laughs> and so the ability to be able to sleep as long as your body needs and to do that on a consistent basis, that's really, really good. Yeah. So sleep is always as important as we've always said. And the last one, Chad, is one-to-one phone calls. And I don't know about you, but I've been on more phone calls in this quarantine <laughs> period than I did in the last six months combined. Sure. Because normally I'm just texting, 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 or seeing people in person. Yeah. And over the last little bit, I've been phoning friends that I haven't spoken to in a very long time and yeah. having long, long catch-ups with them has been really, really cool. So I can certainly agree with this one. One-to-one phone calls, being able to phone a friend and sit on the phone for an hour with them and yeah. find out what's been happening in their world, Definitely. that's really cool. Definitely, and I think that's the important thing here is the one-to-one because when you do find yourself in that group situation, there's always some natural shielding that takes place. People are not going to open up as much with a group. Even if it's a group that you know everyone knows, people are still going to be a little bit guarded if you'd like so have that one-to-one phone call i think that makes a massive difference and yeah those are just nine things to improve your mood let's move on to our last section what's on your mind so barry i went out and asked all of my friends on instagram who had something on their mind and would like us to chat about something and what i got was six great responses um, which you quite enjoyed (laughs) barry (laughs) <laughs> oh, Chad, when I saw this, I was so, it made me so happy. Basically, for those who don't know, you can go into your Instagram stories, you can put a little question box there for people to respond and ask you a question or write something back to you. And a lot of influencers do this to try and engage with their audience, and it's a good way to engage and whatnot. But as always with these things, Chad, spam finds its way into every nook and cranny <laughs> of the internet. And so what we thought would be the nice constructive questions for our podcast became just blatant plugging of their own stuff, Chad. <laughs> Yeah, so we got three comments that asked if I have followed at the most satisfied. And so I actually went onto <laughs> that page and had a look at it and there was nothing special to see there. So no, in all your responses, I have not followed that page. Um, but interesting <laughs> that I could get so many responses from these arbitrary bot names is what it looks like, pointing me in the direction of this one page. Another guy was plugging his new single, which is called Disco Night, Barry. Definitely sounds like an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, so please go and listen to Disco Night. It's a very important <laughs> song to go and catch up on. Um, Chad, another important revelation that came out of this experience is that your feed is goals, apparently. So good job on your feed. I think I, 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 I agree with that sentiment. I think we can all agree your feed is goals. Oh, <laughs> so okay. I hope you continue that. And uh, yeah, it's hilarious to see these responses. Yeah, really, really funny. But uh, I suppose the, the conclusion here is that not too much was on anyone's mind, uh, which is a good thing. It's good that everyone's kind of going about their day-to-day lives and not worrying about things too much. Uh, hopefully this episode is a little bit of a release for you in terms of getting away from the, the crazy havoc that is wreaking outside of our doors and uh, still seeing the lighter side of life and still enjoying being alive. 
without a doubt, Chad. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this. We hope that it's brought you a smile to your face. We've certainly been laughing a lot throughout this episode. <laughs> if we've been messing up our speech a lot. Yeah. So we are certainly in good moods. I think that the weather has a lot to do with it. Yeah. So wherever you are in the world right now, we hope that you are safe. We hope you are staying sane. We hope that you are laughing at yourself and that you're having as much fun as you can in this time. I think everyone is trying to look past the fear and the anxiety. Yeah. I can certainly feel in South Africa the morale is starting to lift. Definitely. And so I hope you're feeling that as well. Well, thank you as always for listening and uh, please do let us know what you think of these episodes. Obviously, we're doing audio only for this quarantine period. Yeah. If you have any thoughts or comments or suggestions, we're always trying to get better. So please do get in touch with us on any of our social media platforms. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And while you're there, hit subscribe, hit share, tell your friends about it and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for tuning in. You've just listened to episode 25 of Across the Pond. Oh.